we're going to go into our scripture today, which comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 21 through 27. And uh, we encourage you to look that up. Uh, we're going to be reading this in the ESV. And uh, I'll read the scripture for us this morning. Again, it's Luke chapter 24, verses 21 through 27 in the ESV. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us today. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we are, today's message is uh, continuing in our sermon series, Practicing Presence. It's a, a little bit of a mini-series that we'll be wrapping up next week. And um, today's message is called Present in the Word. And it probably won't come as a surprise to you that one of the ways that we can encounter the presence of God is in the Bible, is in Scripture, right? That's a big duh. Um, but I wonder, um, in this day and age, how many of us are actually reading the Bible? I, I, I want to just say from the, the top that I have had my own struggles with reading the Bible. And so I don't stand in judgment of anyone. <laughs> I just hope that we can have kind of an open mind and heart to hear um, some of the things in this message. Maybe some of the things in this message might be a little uh, challenging for us. But I think one of the things with the Bible is that... Um, I think a lot of us like the Bible, but maybe a lot of us aren't actually reading it. And that's actually what was found in this study by Lifeway. And so I, I put the article here. You, you may not be able to read it very well with that small print. But it says, Americans are fond of the Bible, but don't actually read it. And so what it says here is, Americans have a positive view of the Bible, and many say the Christian scriptures are filled with moral lessons for today. However, more than half of Americans have never read, uh, have read little or none of the Bible. And so this idea of this kind of paradox that, that, um, you know, we say that the Bible is good. I mean, it's just kind of like something you say and probably, you know, what a lot of people at least say they believe, right? Like, oh yeah, the Bible is good. Yeah, there's good stuff in there. But this is my question. Are we really that fond of scripture if we're not reading it all that much? And even for those of us who grew up in the church, maybe we've read it before, but we, we don't really read it all that much. And, and maybe there's something in here uh, for us. And, um, you know, this may not be everyone. I, I find myself, um, you know, being a lot more drawn to scripture than I used to be. But I have to say, for most of my life as a Christian, uh, even as a pastor, there was this underlying thing that it's like something that, that was within me, but something that, you know, it, 
I just really didn't like to admit um, is that there's a part of me that didn't really like a lot of the stuff I read in Scripture. Maybe you're in that category. And maybe if we're being really honest, some of us don't really like the Bible that much. Maybe we find it boring. Maybe we think we already know it. Uh, one of the things that, that really convicted me about Scripture and kind of changed the way that I read Scripture um, was a teaching from this pastor, uh, Ken Fong. And one of the things he said that's really important for us as we approach Scripture is to admit our contempt for it. That might sound kind of funny. That's a hard word, right? Contempt. That you actually have contempt. That there's some stuff in Scripture you don't like. There's some stuff in Scripture you kind of scoff at. And, and that's what Ken Fong is saying. That um, there's that, that, that uh, saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And maybe for some of us, we, we read Scripture, and uh, a lot of times, uh, if you grew up in the church, there's stories that we think we know. And you hear that scripture and you're just like, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I know what that is. And this happens a lot for preachers, too. You know, how many Christmas sermons and how many Easter sermons can you preach? You know, how different can they be? And maybe for a preacher, when you come to these very familiar passages, you're like, yeah, 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 I know. I, I know what this is saying. And, and what Pastor Fong was saying that can be really dangerous about that mindset is then, if we have that sort of mindset, we can't be surprised by Scripture anymore, right? We can't be, uh, uh, we don't allow for the Holy Spirit to show up in an unexpected way. And for many of us, we may go in with set beliefs and leave our experience of reading Scripture exactly the same. And that, I would argue, is kind of not good, <laughs> I, I would argue that if you are going into reading scripture with certain beliefs and certain mindsets and leaving exactly the same every time, that you're probably not encountering the living God. Is, is that going too far? Let me say that again. If you are going into scripture a certain way and leaving exactly the same, same beliefs, same mindset, same perspectives, nothing changes, then you are probably not encountering the living God. How can I say that? That seems like a pretty bold statement. But think about the times when people encounter God in Scripture, like the stories, right? Like Moses in the burning bush, or pretty much any time that uh, people encounter Jesus, or Paul uh, on, on the road to Damascus, where the light blinds him on the road when he's on his way to persecute Christians. When you think about all of those instances, the people who encounter God are very different on the other side of that encounter, right? Their perspective, their worldview, the way they used to be and act and think completely changes, right? How can it not? Right? We are not God. And so there's going to be a lot of stuff within us that is not exactly godlike, right? And if you encounter God, if you really encounter God, some of that stuff is going to be exposed. So brothers and sisters, when we go into scripture, right? We have to have this expectation, this understanding that 
you probably shouldn't be exactly the same on the other end of it, at least not all of the time, right? And so if scripture never moves your heart, if it never convicts you, if it never corrects you, if it never changes you, then we probably aren't encountering the living God. And so we're going to go into this passage where um, this is a, a, a story about encounter with the presence of God, with the risen Christ. And we're going to see that the disciples here, um, they do encounter the word of God, perhaps in a way that was different than uh, than they had in the past. And so if you remember from last week, uh, these are two disciples, and they are walking uh, home to, probably walking home, uh, to Emmaus uh, from Jerusalem. And this is the day that, that Jesus rose from the dead. But they didn't really understand what was going on. It was very confusing to them. And um, they're walking home and they're talking about it. And while they're talking, uh, a man walks up beside them. And we know that it's Jesus, but they don't know that. They don't recognize him. And Jesus just starts asking them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they, you know, are, are very sad, and they're like, wait, seriously, you don't know? And, and so he's like, yeah, what events are you, you talking about? And so then they start to explain uh, about Jesus and what happened to him and how he uh, was crucified. And um, we're going to pick it up there uh, in verse 21. And so after they talk about his suffering, his crucifixion, his arrest, they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so again, remember, they're sad, they're perplexed, right? Even though they have some evidence of the resurrection, but they don't fully understand it. They don't fully grasp it. And I have to say, um, when I was going through uh, this passage, this next part, I kind of bristled at a little bit. There's a part of it that I didn't like. And, and I got to tell you that um, I want to sh- show you a little trick that sometimes preachers do, that if you're ever an aspiring preacher, don't do this. <laughs> or if you do it, be really honest about why you do it. Um, I was kind of tempted to do this. Okay, This is would be the censored Bible. And he said to them, dot, 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 was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you notice what I cut out here? If you remember, you can go to the scripture. I'm going to show you in a second. Um, but what I took out were the words of rebuke that Jesus spoke. And um, I want to show you and uh, what the way it really reads and how different it is if you take it out. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the part I took out. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I I, I wrote here as the subtitle, Oh, snap, right? Because it's pretty harsh. You're like, oh, Jesus, dang, dude. That's pretty brutal that you would call them foolish ones. 
fools. You're slow of heart to believe. He's kind of insulting them, right? And by the way, remember, they don't know it's Jesus yet. So, you know, for them, for all intents and purposes, it's a stranger coming and insulting them, right? And so we probably don't like this part. I don't like this part. You know, and so when I was uh, going through this passage and reading it over, it, it, there was a part of me that was like, how do you preach on this part? And, and what I realized is that I don't really like the scriptures where Jesus calls people fools. He does it in other parts. Have you noticed that? There's parts where Jesus will, will call the disciples foolish, right? Oh, you of little faith, right? And... Uh, I, I have to be honest, I'm not the only one who does this, right? Um, there, there was actually a book that goes through the entire Emmaus Road encounter. And they pick it apart, verse by verse. And it's a great book, by the way. But they'll take, um, they'll have like a whole chapter on one sentence, right? Uh, like they'll have a whole uh, chapter on... Um, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself, and they'll go into great detail. The one part that they don't go into great detail is, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Right? And maybe this doesn't really fit with our narrative that Jesus is gentle, and Jesus is gracious, and Jesus is forgiving, right? We, we, we like to picture Jesus, you know, picking up the lambs and the sheep and welcoming the little children. And by the way, when he welcomes the little children, he does it by way of rebuke. He's rebuking the disciples because they didn't want the little children to come, right? So even in a passage where he's welcoming little children, oh, Jesus is so nice. He's so gentle, right? He's so gracious. In that same passage, he's like, yeah, no, disciples, no, (laughs) right? He's rebuking them. You know, and so we have to be honest about the ways that we do this in scripture. And by the way, maybe some of you are wondering, you know, maybe you read this passage and maybe part of the reason why we, we do the dot, 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 we take it out, right? We, we, we don't preach on those parts. And by the way, I used to do this a lot more in my preaching. You probably have noticed, uh, pastors do this sometimes where we'll kind of skip a verse or two. And we'll take it out, you know? And I'll be honest, I still do it sometimes. And usually I do it thematically. It's like, okay, we'll deal with the scripture later, but it doesn't really fit, you know, with what we're going to talk about because we, we you can't preach on everything at once, right? Otherwise, every sermon would be five hours, right? And so, you know, sometimes you just have to focus. But I have to be honest, I used to do it a lot more because those passages were problematic to me. I didn't like them. I didn't like what they said. They contradicted what I was saying, or they were distracting, or there's just something about it that didn't fit my narrative. So I would just take it out. And we got to be really careful, right? And so maybe you, you look at a passage like this and you see the oh foolish ones. And there's a part of me that, that was trying to figure out why don't I like this? And one of the reasons why I don't like it is because it seems to be a contradiction. Right? Maybe some of you guys are like, wait, 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 wait. Jesus is calling these disciples fools. Do you remember a scripture where Jesus actually tells us not to call people fools? There, there is one. I want to show you. This is um, uh, Matthew chapter 5. 
Um, and so Matthew chapter 5, 22, uh, and, and this is uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Did Jesus just contradict himself? Is Jesus a hypocrite? Now, this is the thing. If you just gloss over that passage, you're just like, I don't like it, and you don't deal with it, then you won't investigate more. But this is what this passage made me do. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. This seems to be a contradiction. Or, at worst, Jesus is a hypocrite. He just told people, don't call people fools, or you will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he calls disciples fools. But what you find, uh, this is what I found when I digged a little bit deeper, is that the Greek words are different. He doesn't call the disciples uh, in the, the account that we just read, he doesn't call them fools in the same way that he tells us not to call people fools. So the Greek word for fool in the Sermon on the Mount is moros. Does that sound like any word that you know? What does that sound like, moros? It is the, the root, the Greek root, for the word moron, right? So he basically, as Jesus is saying, and whoever says, you moron, will be liable to the hell of fire, right? You idiot, you, 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 you're, you're stupid, right? Like, like you're, you're so dumb. This kind of insult, this kind of insult in your heart, that what Jesus is trying to say is that for many of us, we excuse words. We're like, ah, you know, we're just saying that. It's just words. And he's like, no, there's this curse in your heart. You got to take that seriously, right? But what Jesus uses in Luke chapter 24, he says to them, oh, foolish ones, right? And so you see there in the ESV, they try to distinguish they don't say, oh, you fools, right? It says foolish ones. And the Greek is anoete, anoetos, uh, in the plural, anoetoi. Uh, but what that means is people who don't know. Um, the, that, that rude, the noe, it's about knowledge, right? You just don't know. You're ignorant, right? You don't know what you're talking about. And so what Jesus is saying here, you, you don't know what you're talking about, and you're slow of heart to believe. You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And, and so what Jesus is saying is not incorrect, right? It's not so much that Jesus is trying to be mean, but what he says can be very offensive, right? But it's also true. They don't know. Right? By their own admission, they're puzzled. They're like, we don't know what to make of this. And he's like, yeah, you guys don't know. You're like, okay, these women, they said that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Jesus used to say he would rise from the dead, but we don't know what to make of this. And he's like, man, you guys don't know. You're so slow of heart, right? You're slow of heart to believe what is in the scripture. And what's interesting about this is many of the disciples, uh, the early disciples, they were all Jewish people. Right? Probably a lot of them have read the scriptures. They probably believe the scriptures religiously. So what does Jesus mean when he says, you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? What he's trying to say is that you have been reading scripture wrongly. 
right? I don't think I'm being too harsh here, right? I mean, Jesus is saying, you don't know, right? So he's saying, you have been reading scripture wrongly. You've been reading scripture in this one way this whole time. And maybe for a lot of people, they would look at things about the Messiah and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be a king and he's going to restore Israel to glory, And there is evidence of that in scripture. But there's also passages about talking about suffering. There's also passages like in Isaiah talking about the suffering servant. And so what Jesus is saying, I think, in a sense, is the way that you've been reading scripture is there's some parts of it you don't want to believe. There's some parts of it that don't fit your preconceived notions. And so you just kind of filter it out. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them uh, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We're going to get to the part next week where the disciples, they actually ask Jesus to stay. And when they find out that this stranger is actually Jesus, they look back on the accounts on the road. And one of the things they say is, weren't our hearts burning within us when he explained the scripture to us? Like there was something about that that lit their hearts on fire. Now, Usually when we read that stuff, we're like, yeah, fire is a good thing. Fire burns, and, and it's like passion, right? They were passionate. But have you ever felt fire? Have you ever been burned and it was uncomfortable? If your heart is burning within you, it's not always a good feeling. There might be some discomfort in that burn. Right? There might be some things that are getting corrected. Right? We use the word conviction. And conviction in Christian circles, we, we use that in a good way. Right? We're like, I was really convicted by that sermon. Right? In modern English use, conviction is usually not thought of in positive terms. Right? You're convicted and then you go to jail. Right? <laughs> You're convicted of a crime. Right? But what conviction is about is the truth finds you out. And so for Christians, we believe when the truth finds you out, it's good. But probably you know this. When the truth finds you out, if there's falseness within you, it's going to burn. The false stuff within you is going to have to go. There's going to be stuff in you that is going to have to change. The the, the falsehoods are going to have to change. Right? Maybe part of your ego has been attached to those falsehoods. That's been part of your identity. And maybe some of those things are going to have to go. You're going to have to do that terrible ego-killing thing where you say, I'm wrong. And it never feels good. Right? And yet, this is where they encounter God. This is where they encounter Jesus, where they find the recognition of Jesus. And isn't it interesting They don't know that it's Jesus, but they just know that what he is saying is true. There's something within them. I I think this is to the disciples' credit, and this is part of the reason why it's it's in the Bible. I mean, who knows, but could there be stories where Jesus appeared to other people, and he tried to correct them, and they're like, who the heck are you? You're just going to come in here and barge in my conversation, you total stranger? You're a lunatic. And they're just like, 
And they just totally ignore Jesus, right? I mean, I, I'm just, you know, this is my imagination, right? But the disciples are in here because they didn't do that, right? Because they received it. And, and they did not know who the messenger was yet, right? But they were open enough to hear it. You ever hear that, that, um, that saying, uh, don't judge a book by its cover? I think a lot of us, we do that. You know, we filter out things because we don't like the messenger. Um, and uh, that, that can be very dangerous. It can keep you from a lot of truth. Um, I have a story from my own life uh, it is where I learned this very valuable lesson about not judging a book by its cover. Uh, when I was in high school, um, there was this kid who, uh, he, he was an Asian-American kid, um, who uh, he hung out a lot with uh, the black people at our school. And... I went to a, a private Catholic school, uh, a, a pretty well-to-do school. A lot of people were pretty well-off, and there weren't a lot of minorities. It was mostly white, um, and and so. Uh, but but this kid, he would he hung out with a lot of uh, African Americans, and um, I, I, you know, I'm going to say this, and there's a lot in here that I could correct and nuance, but I hope you'll understand what I mean by this. This is a very stereotypical, but the way people thought about him was they kind of felt like he was trying to be black. That's what people thought, right? Now, that's very stereotypical in how you understand it. But the way that he talked, the way he acted, the way he dressed, the kind of music he listened to, that was kind of the feeling. And, and a lot of people kind of felt like, man, this, this guy, he's kind of fake, right? And there was one time uh, we had a Martin Luther King Jr. service at our school. So we had all kinds of assemblies and, and, you know, worship services that we had to go to because it was a Catholic school. And we had one for Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and uh, this guy, this Asian American guy got up and he read this essay. And while he was reading it, you could hear people have a physical, visceral reaction to it. People started laughing. They started scoffing. There were guys around me. They started getting angry, right? They're like, this guy, and the heck? Are you going to lecture us? You're going to talk to us about this stuff? And it, like people started laughing, and people were, were like getting like red faced and stuff. And it was such a strong reaction. And I'll be honest, I didn't like it either. I was like, man, what is this guy talking about? And um, the next day, uh, I was taking a social justice class. Uh, we had to take these required religion classes, and um, the teacher said. Hey, I know some of you guys had a very strong reaction to that essay that, that was uh, read um, during the assembly yesterday. Can you tell me why? And a lot of people, they had their reasons. They're like, you know, like, oh, you know, he's so arrogant or, you know, like what he said was so wrong. And they gave all these reasons. And he was like, um, actually, I, I, I want you to read his essay. And so he passed out the, uh, uh, on paper, he had printed out the essay, and we read it. And most people had the same reaction. They said, this is not the sa- same essay we heard yesterday. And he said, yes, it is. I actually helped him with the essay. And this is word for word what he said yesterday. Right? And people were amazed. They're like, this is not the same essay. You know, and, and for me, I learned a very valuable lesson that judging a book by its cover, where you look at someone and they're, they're, they're for, you know, the, the way they carry themselves or the way that they look, and we automatically dismiss certain things. I wonder if there are ways in which 
there could be truth that we could encounter. We could even encounter God, I may go so far as to say, but we dismiss it out of hand because we don't like the wrapper that it's in. And so the disciples, they did not do that, but they heard some difficult things. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, seriously, can you imagine that someone comes up to you, a total stranger, was like, man, you don't know anything. Let me correct you. And then they blah, 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 they say a bunch of stuff. How many of you will really receive the rest of the stuff they say? A total stranger comes up to you and insults you by saying you don't know anything. That's what Jesus does. And yet, the stuff he said was true, right? The wrapper didn't matter. It was what was on the inside, right? For many of us, we don't like those kinds of things. We don't like the the kind of messages that don't make us feel good. And if they don't make us feel good from the beginning, we tend to reject it. And so then what you're left with in the Bible, going back to the idea, why don't we like Scripture? Why don't we read Scripture? Why don't we encounter God in Scripture? Because I think a lot of us, we dismiss so much of Scripture. We dismiss out of hand the stuff we do not like, the stuff that does not make us feel good. And you know what you're left with? You're left with the Instagram Bible. Do you guys know what an Instagram Bible is? Um, sorry, my clicker's not working here. Oh, there it is. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> this is just one example. This is somebody selling like an Instagram pack where, have you guys seen these where like people will have like a, a nice scripture verse, but it'll be like covered in flowers and they have like a beautiful font, right? And it's like, you know, those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. And it's usually an inspirational saying, right? That feels good and that's really flowery, right? And And on some level, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but if that is your only Bible, I, I was reading that, um, I guess, uh, you know, they're trying to publish an Instagram Bible, you know, that, that maybe this is the way people read the Bible now. Um, that Jen Wilkins, uh, she wrote this, this article. Uh, I, I think I wrote Jen Wilkins. It's, I, I believe, Jen Wilkin, though, S at the end. Uh, she wrote this uh, article on the Gospel Coalition. And I want to read a part of it for you. Um, it's called Beware the Instagram Bible. Uh, she says, Beware the Instagram Bible, my daughters. She was writing this for women, but I think this is applicable for a lot of us. Beware the Instagram Bible, my daughters, those filtered frames festooned with feathered verses, adorned in all manners of loops and tails, bedecked with blossoms, saturated with sunsets, culled and curated just for you. Beware lest it become for you your source of daily bread. It's telling a partial truth. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, I dreamed of a world in which every copy of the Bible was gone, except those portions we had preserved on Instagram. Consider this Bible, my daughters, if you will. Its perfect squares are friends of the proverb, the promise, and the partial quote, leaving laws, lists, land allotments, and long-stretching lessons to languish off screen. It comforts, but rarely convicts. It emotes but rarely exhorts. It warms, but rarely warns. It promises, but rarely prompts. It moves, but does not mortify. It builds self-assurance, but balks at self-examination. It assembles an iconography whose artists, by spatial necessity, are constrained to choose brevity over breath. So basically, there's not a lot of room, so they, they make it brief. Uh, they choose brevity over breath, inspiration over intellect, devotion over doctrine. 
Beware its conscribed canvas, where calligraphy conquers context. Beware. If the prosperity gospel offered us all the things, the Instagram gospel offers all the feels. It preaches good news in part, but we need the whole. It may move us in the moment, but it cannot sustain us through the storm. There's a danger when we pick and choose scripture. We're not getting all of it. There are times where scripture can be very sweet. Um, Psalm 119, which is a psalm dedicated to the praise of scripture, uh, it's speaking of, of, of the gloriousness and the beauty of the word, of the law of God. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, by the way. You can kind of see this, uh, what I'm quoting here, Psalm 119, verse 103, right? And it goes on and on. And it says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And there are times where scripture is definitely that. There's times where it's easily Instagrammable. It it just feels good, right? And we like those passages. But then it also says in Proverbs chapter 3, and this is also quoted uh, verbatim in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves, corrects him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In other words, if God loves you, just like a loving parent, he will correct you, right? A loving parent isn't somebody who lets their kid do whatever they want, right? The parents love their kids too much to not correct them. Any kids out there, right? That's why we, that's why we correct you, right? Because we love you. Because we know that there are some t- things that, that you just need to know right? How we say that can come out in a more loving way sometimes, but the idea of correction isn't exclusive to love, right? Uh, sorry, isn't, isn't separate, necessarily separate from love, right? Um, but we tend to confuse love and good things and blessings with things that feel good. And the word of God is very good. It is very loving, I would say but it doesn't always feel good, right? If you want the whole of it, right? It's like sweet and salty, right? You guys ever have that combination? Has anyone ever, like you go to McDonald's and you get like a sundae and you dip your fries in it? It's so good. You should try it sometime. Sweet and salty, it's a great combination, right? But on the surface, they seem so different, but you need both, right? You need the sweet stuff. You need encouragement, but sometimes you need correction and rebuke. Right? You need things that affirm you and tell you you're okay. You're okay exactly as you are. And other times you need people to tell you you're wrong. Right? And, and we do need some balance. You know, there are times where some people, some uh, preachers are just so much on the correction. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're a sinner. You got to repent. Right? And that's all it is. Right? And it's like 90% law and 90% condemnation and 10% grace. And then there's other preachers who are 90% grace. You're okay. God loves you, right? God is there for you. God has a marvelous plan for your life, right? And 10% on a good day correction, right? But most of it is just about making you feel good. And both of those approaches are, are maybe not completely correct. 
what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. And this idea of the word of God being like a double-edged sword, it cuts both ways. It's living and active. What that means is that it will encounter you differently depending on where you are in life. There are some of us that we need correction, and so then you need to hear correction. Some of you, you need comfort, so then you need to hear comfort. Some of us get too carried away on one side of the fence, and you need the Word of God to cut you back, right? I mean, there are so many things in Scripture that will not let you get away with your theological biases, will not let you get away with your agendas if you take the whole thing together. And I just want to share just one example of that for me. Uh, I often preach against fear, right? Which is right and good, right? It's, it says, you know, perfect love drives out fear, right? And there's a lot of scripture about that, how we shouldn't fear, do not fear, right? But then there's this scripture, pesky scripture, where we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There are many, many scriptures where people encounter God or Jesus and they fear. Which one is it? Should you be afraid or should you never be afraid? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Right? And if I were to tell you, right, if I was to make a doctrine of those passages where it tells you not to be afraid, the word of God says you should never be afraid. There's no use for fear. I'd be ignoring those other passages, right? The Bible, the word of God, will not let you get away with that if you take it all together, right? There's so much about grace, right? You are saved by grace alone. And there are people who take that to the extreme and they're like, you can do nothing, right? You can do nothing. But then what about all those passages that tell us that we should follow and do what Jesus commands, right? Well, it's all grace. You you can't do anything. Yeah, but it's telling you to obey and to follow commands. Which one is it? Well, it's both, right? You have to take these things in their totality. And when you get too carried away, there's going to be times where you're going to be so carried away with, I got to do this for God. This is the right thing to do. It tells me I have to follow God. And and you're going to need the word of God to cut you in the other direction and say, you need some grace here. And there's be times where you're like, yeah, God's grace. I can do anything. God will love me and forgive me. Where it's like, hey, look, it says, do what he says, right? You got to hold both of those, right? And so um, in all of this has to come that willingness to be exposed, as it says here. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. There's this uh, wonderful Netflix movie uh, called The Two Popes. It got nominated for a few Oscars. It's, it's a fictional account of the two popes, the, the current pope, uh, Pope Francis, before he was pope, uh, meeting uh, Pope Benedict. 
and this conversation that they have. And Francis and Benedict are, pre- are presented as being polar opposites. Benedict is the traditional uh, kind of stalwart protector of the Catholic faith. He's a traditionalist, right? And he will defend the traditional doctrines of the, the church. You do not change, right? You stick to tradition no matter what. And Francis is this guy whose heart is very open. And, and his views have changed over time. And he used to be more stalwart. He used to be more traditional. And, and then he's become a lot softer and a lot more lenient, especially like, like there's things like he'll give communion to lapsed sinners, which in the Catholic faith traditionally was a big no-no. Someone who's divorced or somebody who's out of connection with God, um, they're out of that community. They're not supposed to receive communion, but he would give communion for them. And so Benedict is talking to him about, he's like, hey, yeah, but you used to be this way, and now you're different. And, and uh, Francis, or the future Francis, looks at him, and he says, yeah, I've changed. And Benedict looks at him, and he says, no, you've compromised. And, and the guy who will become Francis looks at him and says, no, I've changed. Is there a difference between compromise and change? I think for some of us, we think it's one and the same. But are we supposed to change? We use the word compromise because we assume we are already right. And that is a dangerous assumption. And compromise also has a a connotation where it makes us think we are losing power. Right? If you had a position and you wanted all the things, you wanted everything in your position, and then you compromised, it means you lost a little. Right? And that's the way people view it. Change, to change your point of view, to change who you are, is to lose power. Isn't this why politicians don't like admitting that they're wrong? I I have this great quote that um, I I think is awesome. I was wrong. You know who said this? No politician ever. That was a joke. (laughs) A little bit of an exaggeration, right? I mean, you know, is it really wrong? I mean, so many politicians have such a hard time admitting that they're wrong, right? And so there's this whole thing that people used to say, mistakes were made, right? Instead of, I made a mistake, right? Because to say that you were wrong would be to compromise your power. I remember I was watching this this, um, debate where uh, one of the, the candidates was grilling another candidate on a position that they changed over their tenure. And, and they had this word for it. They said, you're a flip-flopper, right? You, you keep flipping and flopping between different opinions. And, and I'll never forget this. The, the politician looked at him and he was like, hey, you know, people get to change, right? Like, like I changed. You know, it's not flip-flopping. It's called change, right? And, and somehow that's seen as a weakness in many cases, you know, unless you're like caught on tape, right? Unless you're just caught red-handed and then they'll say they were wrong, right? And they'll make a big tearful apology. But even in that case, we've seen cases now where people are caught on tape and then they'll make excuses. They're like, oh, I was joking. You know, not, not because, you know, it happens on both sides of the political spectrum, but the current president of the United States was, you know, suggesting, making comments about like, hey, maybe Lysol and household cleaners will <laughs> kill the disease. And then all these medical experts were like, yeah, please do not do that. You will kill people, right? You will die. Uh, you, you will die a horrible, painful death if you do that. And so when he was corrected, he got on camera and he said, 
He didn't say, I was wrong. He said, I was being sarcastic. I was just joking, guys. Right? We can't admit when we're wrong. Um, it, it's actually a pretty severe moral flaw. I, I was reading this story uh, from Paul Kalanithi, who wrote this uh, wonderful memoir uh, uh, called When Breath Becomes Air. And uh, Paul Kalanithi was a neurosurgeon. He's talking about in residency that there were some people who just didn't make it. And he said that some of those residents, you thought they were going to make it um, because they were really, really talented, but maybe there was another reason. And so... He talks about this one person. He said that uh, this guy was a talented surgeon, but he could not admit when he'd made a mistake. Uh, so I'm, I'm reading from the book. He said, I sat with him one day in the lounge as he begged me to help him save his career. All you have to do, I said, is look me in the eye and say, I'm sorry, what happened was my fault, and I won't let it happen again. But it was the nurse who, no, no, you have to be able to say it and mean it. Try again. But... No, say it. This went on for an hour before I knew he was doomed. This had nothing to do with his ability as a surgeon. It had everything to do with his inability to admit he was wrong. Are we that stubborn that we would tank a career rather than admit that we were wrong? Maybe we're not to that extreme. But for a lot of us, it's very, very hard to change. I want to suggest, um, just real quick, just some ways that can help you to be open to change. Um, I, I want to warn you, probably when you read this list or when I go over it, there's going to be some things here where you're going to instantly disagree. There's going to be a, yeah, but no, no, like, I don't like this, right? And there's going to be a part of you that thinks that. But I want to try to convince you, or at least suggest, right? I mean, you take it into consideration. You do your process and do with it what you will. But this, for me, is how I approach ideas that I don't like, ideas that are different than mine, new ideas. Uh, This, I think, is how you can be open to change, one way at least. When you hear someone's take on something, anything, seriously listen, read, absorb it all without critique, and find the good first. Right? You know how uh, many of us, we make a list of pros and cons uh, for a lot of things. You're trying to make a decision, or you're trying to analyze someone's argument. I know they make us do this in school. But what most of us do, whether we do this consciously or not, is most of us, we do the negative first. Right? It's actually kind of a, a mental shortcut. And the reason why you do that is because if you can dismiss a person's argument, then you don't have to spend any mental space or energy um, to consider it. And by the way, change, again, it's threatening. It can challenge your ego. There's something within you that will have to die and and be humbled and humiliated. And so we avoid change. So what most of us do is we find ways to poke uh, holes in someone's argument before we even consider it, right? So again, in the case of of what I was saying about that kid in high school, uh, that kid in my high school, that people poked holes in his argument before he even opened his mouth, Right? It was just who he was. We're like, yeah, we're not going to listen to this guy. Right? And then they could just spend the rest of the time just making fun of him. And that's what they did. Right? Instead of considering the actual argument. Um, I've said this before, but it's something that has been very impactful for me. Uh, what Richard Rohr says, and by the way, Richard Rohr, I don't agree with everything that Richard Rohr has said. But something that he said that really resonated with me is he said that you got to listen to people. We're, we live in this world where people don't listen to each other anymore. And what he said is that if your argument, if your take, if your opinion, uh, uh, whatever you, you present, if it has at least 10% truth, 
it's worth listening to. There's even 10% truth there. But with a lot of the political discourse, I mean, there's people, they literally will not listen to each other, right? A Republican opens their mouth and a Democrat will be like, yeah, no, it's flawed. This premise is flawed, right? I've used this this, this, uh, example before, but I remember uh, the day after Obama was elected, I saw a bumper sticker that said, reverse the mistake and had the date of the next election, right? I'm like, reverse the mistake? He hasn't even been in office yet. He hasn't even been inaugurated. We mean reverse the mistake. What mistakes? He hasn't made a mistake yet. But what they had already assumed is it's a mistake. I know I'm not going to like him. And everything that happens then is confirmation bias. You look for the wrong so that you can be right. Because being right feels good. It confirms your ego. Being wrong is a lot more difficult, right? But if you want to change, if we are going to get anywhere in life, if if we are going to actually change, you have to take the good first, right? Because to do it the other way closes you off. The moment you say, yeah, no, I don't like this, then if there were any good that came after that, you're not going to hear it. And that's what happens for most people. That's why we have a political discourse the way we do. And by the way, religious talk is very similar, right? There are people that we just write off right away and we don't learn from them. And by the way, I do it too. There are certain uh, people that I had heard things about. Like, like, I'll just use one example, Joel Osteen. I actually have sermons that years ago, I would bash Joel Osteen and I had not heard a single Joel Osteen sermon. I just heard sound bites, right? I had not read a single Joel Osteen book. And one of the things I was convicted of was like, Steve, you haven't even read any of his stuff. So I read one of his books, and I'll tell you, it wasn't all bad. There was some good stuff in it, right? It it wasn't everything I agreed with, but at least first, to start with openness. And and I want to encourage you, do not act upon what you learned or accept it completely yet. Just be open to it. Learn, right? You know, and and so this is very important because I I think, you know, one of the, the critiques is, but Pastor Steve, if you're open to everything, you'll fall for anything, right? And, and what, what I would say is, what is the alternative? That you never change. Have you ever uh, talked to someone who's just set in their ways? They won't listen. They won't change. Do you want to be that kind of person? Right? Do you want to be the kind of person who will never change their mind? What kind of world are we going to live in if we're that way? So you have to be open first, right? But, of course, no one wants to be a sucker, right? No one wants to fall for everything. So don't act on what you heard, right? Um, there are people, uh, like salespeople, they know this, right? They know that there, there's some people who will fall for stuff right away. Everything sounds good. I'm one of those people, right? Where I hear something, I, I read a new book, I get really excited about it, and, and I want to preach a whole sermon series on it. I want to change all my views, right? Because this is like the newest and greatest. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned is the only person I'll tell about that is Aaron. <laughs> and Aaron sometimes will be like, Steve, you're, you just always get excited about everything. It's because I consider everything, right? But a lot of times I'll have to take some time to just sit on it before I act on it. You notice how a salesperson will get you to try to make the sale right then and there before you can think about it further? Because they're going to try to present you only one side, all the pros, right? And before you can consider the cons, they're like, sign on the dotted line. Give us your credit card, right? So, you know, don't act right away. Take some time. 
Then look for the negatives. Then look for the, sorry, that should say cons, not pros. And critique the arguments. Research the findings. Consider the other side of the argument. And uh, like I said, try to uh, measure people's arguments on the basis of their arguments, not on what you think of the person. And so just in closing, friends, um, I think the way that we encounter the living God in Scripture, um, if we are going to encounter the living God in Scripture, you must be willing to be wrong. And so I I just want to encourage you um, to acknowledge the parts of Scripture you find yourself skipping. Those things that you ignore, those parts you don't like, those parts that offend you, that don't fit your preconceived perspective on Christianity. Um, You know, maybe you've had this way of looking at things uh, and, and, and you're just like, this is it, and you're so set. What if you're wrong? There's a scripture, it says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. There's only one person who is completely right. That is God. I'm not God. You're not God. And if we are going to encounter the living God, be willing to get frustrated by Scripture. Be willing to be convicted, to be corrected. It doesn't have to happen overnight. You don't need to accept it all at once. But I'm telling you, those moments where you get frustrated by Scripture are gold. Those moments where you get stumbled, where you get confused, where you get offended— Those are moments where you could potentially encounter the living God. Because God will not encounter you in all of your arrogance and rightness. He will encounter you when you are willing to be broken, you're willing to be molded, you're willing to accept the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jason, if you could come up. Let's just take a moment. And uh, I think a message like this, maybe we just soak it in for a moment. So Jason starts to strum the few, first few strums of the, the message. Let's just take a moment to just soak in what we just heard. God, I confess that there are many times I like being right. In a lot of ways, uh, life is easier that way. But it may not be fuller that way. We might be missing out on ways that you want to grow us and help us to see more of who you are, more of who we can be in you. So as the disciples were wrestling with the reality of resurrection, something that did not fit their preconceived notions, And you came and you wrecked all of that. (laughs) They just didn't know. But they were willing, able to receive that correction. Help us, God, to be open to the many ways you may be moving in our hearts. You may be showing us, God, where we are wrong. And where we need to hear your voice again. To receive your leading. Where we need to surrender what we thought we believed and what we thought was right. God, if there is things within us that need to be preserved and protected, God, may those things remain. May you just wipe away and burn away all that is not worthy of you, all that is not correct or right. We thank you, God, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.